Chapter Four of the Statement of Stella Maberly by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. As I expected, I found them together in the drawing room. Hugh Dallas seated in the window bay, and Evelyn at some distance from him. His troubled, despondent look was certainly not that of an accepted lover, and there was an air of constraint and consciousness in them both as I entered from which I guessed that the conversation I had interrupted was chiefly about myself. We talked for a while in a rather perfunctory manner, and I think that I was the most self-possessed of the three, and succeeded perfectly in hiding my torment of jealousy and suspense behind the mask of indifference that I had schooled myself to wear in his company. At last Evelyn made some pretext for quitting the room, and as she did so I saw the glance of secret encouragement she threw him. We were alone together, he and I, for the first time since we had met, and I could hear the beating of my heart, even above the patter of the fountain on the lawn outside, in the silence. I watched him covertly as he sat there moodily pulling about some flowers in a vase which stood on the window-sill. I knew he was nerving himself to make an appeal to me. I knew, or thought I knew, what that appeal would be, and suddenly I felt I could not trust myself to listen to it. I had overrated my courage, and the one thing I desired now was to escape before the words were spoken. I had already risen with some incoherent excuse for joining Evelyn, when he stopped me, with a mastery I felt powerless to defy. "'You will not go to Evelyn yet,' he said. "'I have something to say to you first and you must hear it, Miss Maberly. Surely you will not refuse me so small a thing as that? There was a suppressed passion in his tone that thrilled me. For the moment I could almost have believed that it was I whose love he was seeking, and even though I knew how cruelly fleeting such an illusion would prove, I surrendered myself to it. I will hear anything you wish to say to me, I said. I want to know first, he said, why you persist in looking upon me as an enemy. "'Have I given you any reason for supposing so?' I asked. "'I don't think so.' "'Any reason?' he repeated. "'Have you ever condescended to be commonly civil to me? Would you speak to or look at me? Would you be here in the same room with me if you could help yourself? Do you suppose I'm too dense to see that? Perhaps enemy is too strong a word. You may not think me sufficiently important to deserve even such a title as that, but you have taken very little trouble to hide the fact that you dislike me about as thoroughly as one human being can dislike another. You will not deny that. At least I had kept my wretched secret from him. It was some comfort even then. And if I do not deny it, I said, what then? I have the right to ask what I have done to deserve it, and I do ask. I can give you no answer, except that liking and disliking are sentiments beyond one's control. Justice ought not to be at all events, he retorted. Can you not be just to me? I don't claim to be a better sort of fellow than my neighbours, but I can honestly say that there is nothing in my life which makes me unworthy of any woman's friendship. Oh, I didn't need to be told that, though he might have been the worst of men, and I should have loved him just the same. 
it was hard to see him standing there pleading with me to lay aside what he supposed to be a rooted antipathy and not to undeceive him by some mad words which would force him to understand my real feelings why should you wish to gain my friendship i said it can make no difference to you whether you have it or not it makes this difference he said that unless i have it i must keep away from tanstead for the future and you think evelyn would be willing that you should go i said incredulously oh, she would be sorry of course but you must know that you have the first place in her heart it distresses her too much to see as she cannot help seeing that my presence here is distasteful to you that for some reason or other it has brought about a change in your feelings for her so she has sent you to me to try whether you cannot overcome my my prejudices is that what i am to understand she thought that if i spoke to you and could get you to tell me plainly what you have against me i might possibly succeed in showing you that you have judged me too harshly he replied look here miss maberley why can't you bring yourself to think of me as at all events a possible friend why do you wish to drive me away from tanstead altogether i shall not drive you away i said it is i who will leave tanstead and then you will be able to come here as before as if evelyn or i would permit that if you really detest me so much that rather than endure the sight of me you would separate yourself from such a friend as evelyn there's no more to be said i must go away give up all hope of happiness here is that what you wish it rests with you it does not rest with me i said angrily i will not have the responsibility thrust on me and it's all so hollow and insincere if evelyn wishes to keep you she will whether i approve or disapprove it is a mockery to leave it to me like this i have already told you that evelyn's first consideration is your happiness and peace of mind he said i'm bound to respect her feelings in the matter to say nothing of yours so i ask you once more whether i am to go or stay what is it to me which you do i cried wildly do i not know that whatever i say it will make no difference evelyn will be willing enough to make you happy when i am once out of the way why should you not marry when you are so plainly intended for one another and i shall not care do you understand that i am utterly indifferent why should it matter to me so long as i never see you again there i have given you your answer now let me go yes i have had my answer he said i hoped it would have been a kinder one but i suppose i had no right to expect anything else from you our interview he added grimly as he held open the door for me has not been such a pleasant one that i should wish to prolong it good-bye miss maberley you need not be afraid of any further persecution from me you've shown me plainly enough that your decision is final i passed out without venturing to look at him and went up to my own room i felt relieved elated at having triumphed over my own weakness i had met him face to face and without faltering 
he would never suspect now my real feelings towards him i could almost believe that i really had ceased to care oh how came it that my suicidal intentions of an hour or so ago seemed only cowardly and sentimental i had courage to go on living now if only to see how evelyn would act when she found that i could not be cajoled into sanctioning her desertion of me and how long it would be before her pretended scruples were thrown to the winds we did not meet again till dinner when although we were obliged to keep up some sort of conversation on indifferent topics i could tell by her troubled expression that hugh dallas had informed her before leaving of the result of his appeal i evaded our usual after-dinner stroll in the garden by pleading that i had a headache and wished to be quiet so she and mrs maitland went without me i sat in the drawing-room in the same seat in which i had listened to him and tried to imagine him there in the window-bay and to live through the scene again sentence by sentence the butler brought in the lamps without disturbing my reverie and the trees outside were becoming a blurred bronze against the violet evening sky before i heard evelyn enter the room softly is your head better now stella she said coming up to me and laying one hand on my shoulder because if you'll let me i want to talk to you about oh, about somebody i shrank involuntarily from her light touch i know what you want to say i said and it'll be no good you will only waste your words but you will hear me dearest she said we've been such friends till something came between us don't harden yourself against me now you must know how i love you stella you sent hugh away this afternoon very unhappy it makes me miserable too to find that you are so bitterly prejudiced against him i like him very dearly can't you try to like him a little for my sake it will grieve me to have to send him away but if you really cannot bring yourself to tolerate him what else can i do why do you insist on making me responsible i said except to put me in the wrong i tell you i will have nothing to do with it you're your own mistress do as you choose how can i choose to make you wretched and uncomfortable stella this is your home as well as mine and as long as you and i are together i want you to be happy here as you were at first and though i was afraid to say anything i have fancied lately that you are not happy with me was i right i never am happy long anywhere i said impatiently i get unsettled and restless and i don't think this place agrees with me quite i shall have to leave you sooner or later evelyn it had better be soon leave me stella she exclaimed i hope that nothing would ever separate you and me did she actually imagine that i could live in the same house with them not even hugh dallas i said sardonically Laylam is not so far from here we shouldn't be separated even then oh but you say you dislike him so i begin to wonder stella whether you're not the least bit jealous i felt myself turning hot jealous i cried what do you mean evelyn do you suppose oh don't be jealous any more dear there's no need 
i do like him very much he is so manly and honourable i feel sure that he will make the woman he loves very happy stella but still but still he can never be what you are to me and if you tell me that you really cannot i hate insincere talk like that evelyn i interrupted you don't mean it and you know you don't she flushed painfully you're very strange to-night stella she said i don't know why you should think i'm not sincere but i would rather see the two dearest friends i have liking and respecting one another and i do want you to make an effort to overcome this antipathy so that we could all three be happy after all you can have no real reason for it you've got some morbid fanciful idea into your head about him which i know i could convince you in a moment was unjust trust me stella tell me why you dislike him i will not be catechised like this i said writhing in impotent anger it's too humiliating you are simply trying to exasperate me you do understand or if you really don't you might have before this only you were too blinded by your own selfishness am i selfish and blind too she said slowly tell me how stella it is the least you can do very well i will tell you though you know it already you're not a fool evelyn and even a fool might have guessed that if i avoided him and made him believe i detested the very sight of him it was because because i was afraid of myself do you want me to go on stella she exclaimed oh you were right i have been blind if you had only confided in me i had some pride left i retorted i would have kept it from every living soul if i could and now you have succeeded in wringing it out of me be satisfied with that and leave me in peace oh you don't understand she cried it's so sudden and bewildering oh that i oh, but i shall be able to tell you in a moment how the less we say now the better it will be for us both i said you see now what a mockery the word friendship is between us and how necessary it is that we should part we need not she cried oh stella did i not tell you all i cared for was your happiness well oh for heaven's sake don't go through the farce of offering to give him up i said scornfully as if he would be likely to allow himself as if i would accept i will listen to no more of this hypocritical cant see i have stopped my ears say what you please now i shall hear nothing she caught my hands in hers and drew them down you shall hear me you foolish wilful girl she said i won't let you wreck your own life like this i wrenched myself free with such violence that she staggered back and fell into a couch on which she lay white and panting looking up at me as i stood over her in a tempest of ungovernable fury be silent do you hear i said i warn you that if you say a single word more just now i can't answer for what i may do i might kill you if you're wise go away and leave me to myself go away she rose to her feet unsteadily 
her eyes misted over with pain and apprehension and appeal as they met mine she drew a long gasping sigh and pressed her hand to her left side and then supporting herself on her way by chairs and couches she slowly went out of the room leaving me standing there already a little ashamed of my outburst but sullen and impenitent still everything was at an end between us meek and spiritless as she was she must recognise that we could never be the same to one another again that my confession had made a chasm that nothing could ever bridge it was a relief to have delivered my soul to have done with all dissimulation and yet i cursed my insane folly in allowing the one thing i was bound to conceal to be extorted from me and i hated evelyn for having driven me beyond prudence she had been so irreproachably correct throughout so maddeningly forbearing and gentle she had put me so hopelessly in the wrong and now i was at the mercy of her discretion and some day or other she would infallibly confide my secret to him and he would despise and pity me at least i wouldn't be there to see it i'd leave tanstead the very next day even if which was not likely evelyn tried to keep me any place was better than this now how long i sat nursing these bitter and angry thoughts i don't know it was late and the servants had locked up and gone to bed before i heard footsteps descending the stairs and entering the room could it be evelyn coming to patch up a piece i'd have none of her forgiveness she should know how i hated her and how determined i was that this should be the last night i ever spent under her roof but the footsteps were not light enough for evelyn's when i turned it was to see mrs maitland in a loose wrapper with a look of severity and decision that was unusual on her flaccid good-natured countenance i came down miss maberley she said to ask you to tell me what is wrong with evelyn i can get nothing from her and you can probably enlighten me if you choose has she made up her mind to refuse mr dallas or has she not if she has and you have induced her to do it may heaven forgive you i know no more about her intentions than you do i replied haughtily if she refuses mr dallas it will not be through any inducements of mine and it's useless to demand explanations from me in that very peremptory tone she changed her manner at once oh was i peremptory my dear i'm sure i didn't intend to be and i beg your pardon but i'm so worried and uneasy about it and i thought perhaps you the poor child is dreadfully distressed about something i was quite shocked when i went in to see how ill she was looking and i'm sure she'd been crying she's been trying to write a letter to hugh dallas i'm afraid and she is really unfit for it just now writing to him writing to tell him of course from the highest and most unselfish motives what she had just wormed out of me to propose that impossible renunciation to him could the most feline malice invent a more crushing and humiliating revenge trying to write i repeated then she has not written yet i think she's made one or two attempts and torn them up oh, don't let her write to-night i said persuade her to give it up and go to bed my dear i tried 
that she declares she can't sleep until she has written. I wonder, she added, whether if I gave her just a few drops of that sleeping draught you have. Do, I said eagerly, you will find it on my table. Make her take some at once. You're sure it's quite safe? Oh, yes, yes, perfectly. It can do her no harm. The dose is on the label, and she ought to get to sleep at once and not think about that letter till morning. Oh, she will be really ill to-morrow, unless she can have a good night's rest, and I've no bromide or sulfonal or anything. I really think I, I had better. On your table, you said? Oh, then, good night, my dear, and don't sit up too late yourself, for I'm sure you look as if you needed sleep, too. She left me to myself, and for the first time I was thankful for her fussiness, for her suggestion of the sleeping draught would effectually prevent that letter from being written that night. Tomorrow I would see Evelyn, and compel her by every argument I could think of to abandon her quixotic intention. If she could only be induced to take the draught at once. I wanted to be sure. I felt stifled indoors. Outside there would be air and I might find out what I was so anxious to know. It was easy to slip back a bolt or two on the hall door, and soon I was outside in the warm darkness. From the lawn I could see Evelyn's window. The curtains were drawn, but above them that slender bar of light told me that she was still up. Perhaps the letter was now being written that would present her to him as more angelic and adorable than ever and render me odious and despicable in his eyes. Oh, how intensely I hated her at that moment! Whether she believed herself sincere, or whether she was the most consummate of hypocrites, she was equally betraying my secret, exposing me to the ignominy of being refused by the man to whom I had given my heart unasked. Was it then, as I stood there under the cedar, that it flashed across my mind, that in the medical book I had consulted I had read a statement that chloral, even in the smallest doses, was extremely dangerous in any case of weakness of the heart? And had not Evelyn, that first afternoon as we were driving from the station together, told me that once, at all events, her heart had been considered to be affected? I have tried and tried in vain to be quite clear when this first occurred to me. There are even times when I have terrible doubts whether both these facts may not have been present to my mind from the very first, even when Mrs. Maitland was suggesting chloral. I cling to the hope that, bitter as my feelings were towards Evelyn, I was guiltless even in thought of such wickedness as that. I cannot believe that I was really capable of willfully allowing her to encounter any peril which I could have prevented. I have enough to reproach myself with, God knows, without that. No, it was not till later, I'm sure of that. Not till the moment when, as I stood watching, I saw the bar of light suddenly die out. And then, as soon as I realised the danger, my first impulse was to rush up, arouse Mrs. Maitland, find out whether the drug had been taken as yet, and what could be done. But if Evelyn had already taken the chloral, it would be too late to interfere. She might not have needed it at all. In any case, was it certain that it would do her the slightest harm?' 
people outgrew weakness of the heart she was no longer an invalid perhaps she had never even had anything really wrong with her heart young girls often like to fancy they're suffering from some interesting malady doctors can make mistakes and if i alarmed mrs maitland by my misgivings what would she think why that i had really been contemplating evelyn's death and was seized with a tardy remorse i should be exposing myself to the most dreadful suspicions all for a risk which most likely only existed in my over-excited imagination i argued all this with myself over and over again as i walked the lawn feverishly backwards and forwards unable to arrive at any conclusion for long until at last too exhausted bodily and mentally to go on thinking i sank into one of the wicker seats that had been left in the garden why oh, torment myself any longer when no action was possible it was out of my hands now besides nothing would happen and then i was so worn out by all i had gone through since that afternoon that i suppose i must have fallen asleep in the chair for i was not conscious of anything more until i was roused by a sense of chillness in the air and i opened my eyes to see the eaves and gables of the old house before me looking unnaturally sharp and distinct in the livid light of approaching daybreak and the sky above already starless and mottled with pearl and opal clouds i rose shivering and went indoors still overcome with drowsiness and once in my room threw myself on my bed without undressing in the hope that sleep would come when i closed my eyes but i only succeeded in dozing for a few minutes at a time and soon the daylight that filtered in through my blinds and the first feeble cheeping of the birds outside made even this impossible and i lay there trying wearily to identify the various objects in the room and strangely baffled and irritated by being unable to account for a grey square on my table that seemed unfamiliar as the light increased it revealed the square as a letter and with an irrational hope of finding it a note from mrs maitland to tell me that she had not given evelyn the chloral i sprang up and drew the curtains in order to read it then my mind would be set at rest and i could sleep but when i tore the envelope open it was evelyn's handwriting that i saw and though it is long since i last had that letter in my hands i believe i can remember it almost word for word as i read it then i have begun this several times she wrote and tore it up and yet i can't sleep until i have put an end to all this misunderstanding i know so well that you will be even more wretched than i am you poor self-tormenting stella i would have told you but you were not yourself you would not have listened and i was afraid of driving you into saying or doing something you would regret if i tried any more just then but now i have a superstitious feeling that if i don't tell you at once this very night something that will change all your thoughts of me you may never know and so perhaps miss a great happiness hugh is nothing to me stella has never been anything but a very dear friend oh, perhaps at one time at florence he might but i felt that my hold on life was so slight then that i had no right to let him care for me in that way and since then where were your eyes stella that you couldn't see how devotedly he has come to worship you 
though he almost despaired of ever touching your heart. You were so proud, so resolute in keeping him at a distance that you misled us both. I quite believed that you had taken one of your obstinate dislikes to him, and that his only chance was in time and patience. We had long and anxious consultations over it, and I could only promise that I would do my best for him. When all the time... Oh, if you had only let me talk to you about him, only shown the slightest sign of interest, I would have told you how it was my dearest wish, ever since I first heard he was a neighbour of ours, that you and he might make each other happy. But I know now, and I understand, that you were silent out of loyalty to me, and I love and admire you all the more for it, and I mean to make you happy in spite of your wilful obstinate self, for I made him promise to come over to-morrow as usual, in case I could induce you to relent. I can tell him now, though you may be sure that I shall not say a word you would not wish me to say, but I can let him understand that you feel you have been too hasty, and that he need not give up all hope just yet. As for you and me, Stella, let us forget that this cloud has ever come between us. We will never speak of it, never think of it again, unless to rejoice that it has passed and left our love all the firmer. There's so much I want to say, but I'm too tired to sit up any longer, and I feel I shall sleep soundly now. I shall tell Saunders to put this on your dressing-table, so that you will see it before you go to bed. And now good-night, Stella. Love me always, and never, never have bad thoughts about me again. Not even my hard and embittered heart could be proof against the love and generosity and delicacy which spoke in every sentence of this letter, and overwhelmed me with shame and contrition. Was there ever such perversity of misconstruction, such readiness to impute my own base thoughts to others? such ingenuity in making myself and them miserable as i had been guilty of all these wretched weeks what could i ever say and do to show evelyn how sincerely i repented that though she had forgiven me i could never entirely forgive myself how long would it be before i could go to her room and pour out all my penitence and gratitude how impatiently I realised that it was too early as yet, that I must not venture to disturb her slumber for several hours to come. And after the first sharpness of shame and remorse, I began to feel the exquisite thrill of a joy that would not be quite suppressed. In vain I tried to think only of my wickedness and folly. My heart would throb wildly with the knowledge that Hugh Dallas loved me, all unlovable as I was that an immense unhoped-for happiness was coming to me with the brightness of the summer morning and the expanding flowers and the triumphant trilling and piping of birds at last i could resist the impulse to go to evelyn no longer if she was asleep i would sit beside her and wait until she awoke i might find her awake already i went to her door and opened it softly the curtains were thick and shut out the light so effectually that all was grey and indistinct at first, but I could see that Evelyn was still asleep, lying with her face turned from me and her right hand extended, palm upwards, as if seeking to be clasped. I laid mine upon it. 
was it my fancy that made it seem so strangely chill and unresponsive and why could not my ear detect any sound of breathing i recollected the chloral no doubt that would have produced a deeper sleep than usual i was giving way to fanciful terrors again when i had let in the light the reassuring everyday light i should see that all was well i drew the curtains softly for fear of waking her the light poured in and the cool air of morning met my cheeks through the open casement thrushes were hopping about the turf and the sky between the cedar branches was tinged with saffron and rose and i turned and saw evelyn's face and realized the cruel and awful truth nothing would wake her any more no words of love and sorrow would ever reach her she was dead end of chapter four